0: In today's episode, Harry spends a lot of time high in the air getting flung around and nearly plummeting to his death. Does Dumbledore already know that it's Quirrell after the stone? Thanks for listening to Belated Binge. I'm Zach, your host, who didn't read these books until I was a grown man. Today, we're diving so deep into chapters 10 and 11 of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone that you'll feel like you're rereading without picking up a book yourself. Just try not to take them too seriously. The Belated Binge Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Belated Binge Podcast. I'm Zach, and I'll be your host throughout this journey revisiting some of the most iconic series in recent memory that I was incredibly late on. Like our current binge of Harry Potter, where despite being the same age as movie Harry, I didn't read this series until my mid-twenties. That's the belated part. But after finally coming around, they're one of my favorite forms of entertainment, so we're going to go a chapter at a time, maybe two, discussing world building, character development, plot holes, we'll foreshadow, we'll theorize, and we'll give away meaningless awards. That's the binge part. Together, they make the belated binge, and today we continue that reread of the Harry Potter series with chapters 10 and 11 of Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone. Halloween and Quidditch. And as usual, we'll start with the play-by-play. But first, this podcast will have spoilers. We dissect each chapter, character motivations, and the key moments that impact the greater story. This podcast could also contain some adult language at times. I do my best, but I'm not perfect. I also have some exciting news to share. I'll be making an appearance on First Years, which is a Harry Potter podcast geared toward first-time adult readers of the series. It's a really cool podcast that I found recently, and I'm really excited to get to collaborate with Sarah over there because I get to jump ahead and I get to talk some Order of the Phoenix and everyone's favorite pink toadstool. I've got to keep it spoiler-free, so wish me luck, but I'm excited because I've been binging her show, and she always has a really interesting extra element to break down that supplement the book material in a really, really fascinating way. That episode is, uh, it's scheduled to release on Tuesday. Next Tuesday. This coming Tuesday? However you want to say that. Tuesday. Keep an eye on social, and I'll let you know if anything changes, and we're also going to have Sarah on Belated Binge soon, too. Uh, So that's it for our announcements. To catch you up from last week with our guest host, Amanda, from the Fox and the Foxhound podcast, we went through chapters 8 and 9, The Potions Master, and The Midnight Duel. Harry survived his first week or so in the Hogwarts Carnival Death Trap. He was in close proximity to three of his four most hated characters of the whole series, although he didn't know one was hiding under a beanie. He went to classes, Snape was terrible, in his first potions lessons, no matter how many secret hidden messages he tried to put into his targeted bullying, he wrote a broom for the first time, he got tripped by Malfoy and walked into a sting, had his first adventure with our other three favorite Gryffindors, came face to face with a three-headed slobber monster, and oh yeah, started putting together his clues about the book's climax. I know, it was a long episode. Today, we dive back in with the play-by-play. Play-by-play. On the play-by-play segment of the Belated Binge podcast, we recap the chapter or chapters that we're covering in this episode, much like an announcer would do for sports. Halloween starts with a shout-out to Malfoy, who's apparently surprised that Harry and Ron weren't expelled from his trap. And that's the second time in this book so far that Draco has thought that he'd gotten rid of the Chosen One from Hogwarts. Obviously, he's 11, so he gets a pass for not realizing that slipping curfew isn't a felony in the real world, nor in this fake one either. Although it does come with a penalty, you're not getting expelled. He also doesn't know that they also could have been eaten alive, which is the next worst thing to expulsion, according to Hermione who's still not a member of our trio. Yet, we still have a duo, for now. And our duo of Harry and Ron actually had a great time on their little adventure, like stealing the keys to your dad's car, flying or not. Sneaking out is fun, unless you get caught or become puppy chow. But the trapdoor under the three-headed dog we later learn is named Fluffy, because of course it is. This trapdoor has sparked our little heroes in training to start their first Sherlock Holmes impression, and it starts with Harry filling Ron in about the package he and Hagrid picked up from Gringotts, breaking the promise he made to Hagrid to keep that a secret. And people say that Hagrid can't keep his trap shut. They tried to loop Neville and Hermione in on their speculation of what might need all of this protection, but neither of them uh, care. So they just talk to each other about what might be in that package. However, they're interrupted by a special delivery for Harry with a note to not open it with an audience and instructions for qu- 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 Quidditch practice. McGallion hedging her bet. Ron resembles the broom handle over the fact that Harry got a Nimbus 2000, which is basically the Ferrari, I guess, of racing brooms at this point. Lamborghini, McLaren, I don't know. Who watched that F1 show on Netflix? I missed it. Maybe I'll wait, I don't know, 10 years and watch it and do a podcast about it. Anyway, we can't have a joyous moment without this version of Malfoy trying to be a bully. Apparently, he has a thing for snooping on people's mail. First, the remember all with Neville. Now, he's trying to snatch Harry's broom and narking to the first professor that he can see another swing at getting Harry in trouble, and another K hung in the stands, which is a baseball way of saying he struck out. He missed. He failed. And this is the kind of thing that gives me my personal problem with Malfoy as a character. Yes, he's 11. Yes, his father is a clan member. Yes, he's spoiled. Yes, he has a lot to overcome in order to not be a drain on society. But his father didn't tell him to spend every waking moment of his day at school trying to get Harry in trouble or trying to take people's stuff. In the next book, during the Nocturnality chapter, Lucius actually tells him not to come off as anti-Harry and also shames the idea of him being a thief. So he's not acting this way on his father's orders specifically. These are his choices. He's going out of his way to do them. And he continues to do so until book six, when his arc finally peaks, he gets his sympathy for the position that he's in at that point because his father is absolutely to blame for a lot of his bad characteristics. And he puts him in a horrible, horrible position at that point. But Draco still has to answer for some of his own choices at some point. I don't know when that point is, but it's annoying all the way back to age 11 so somewhere between age 11 and age 16 or 17 or whatever uh, 16 I guess in book 6 you can't just blame daddy all the time for your behavior again I digress Draco isn't the only one mad that Harry got a broomstick Hermione breaks her cone of silence to give them crap before stomping away with her nose high up in the air doing her I don't know best petunia impression And this type of behavior is what gives the early book Hermione her reputation as a stuck-up know-it-all. Well, this and the fact that words stuck-up know-it-all actually exist on the page of the book. But it's kind of funny to see baby Ron and baby Hermione just bickering knowing where that particular uh, ship is heading. Harry's distracted all day, thinking about Quidditch and thinking about flying again. And that evening, he has his first practice with Oliver Wood, who teaches him the rules of Quidditch. We all know Quidditch by now, and it makes sense to us, even if the game doesn't actually make any, any sense at all in general. But I do love when Harry calls it basketball, because basketball, that's a great sport. Now, who's ready to talk about the NBA trade deadline that just passed? No one? All right. What's funny is that Wood has never heard of basketball because his life is missing a very, very, very round orange ball-sized piece in it. But they practice Harry's reflexes by having him catch little golf balls. Golf. Another muggle sport. The question is, does Wood know what a golf ball is or what golf is? Or did the school just go snag a bag of title lists years ago and use them as dummy snitches? I'm not the first person that's brought this up, but it's funny to me, so I'm doing it anyway. Harry's settling in at Hogwarts, and he goes into Flitwick's Charms class for the iconic swish and flick scene. We know what happens and all of the memes that followed, but something I wanted to hit on that doesn't get all the attention. Harry got paired up with Seamus, and he's happy about this, particularly because apparently Neville was trying to get Harry's attention to be partners. The fact that Harry is avoiding Neville sucks, but it also just fuels the upcoming arc for Neville, which we're going to chat more about very, very soon. Of course, there's Hermione correcting Ron's pronunciation, although differently than the movie and the viral memes that you've seen probably twice a day for the past 20 years and ron talking crap about her after class she overhears she storms away crying she doesn't come out of the bathroom for classes or for the feast she's quite distraught and ron tries to play it off like he doesn't care but harry can tell he feels bad about it and then here it comes troll in the dungeons played off pretty funny in the movie although less dramatic in the book of course it's Quirrell who announces this and this is where i have to stop for a second okay Shouldn't this have been a dead giveaway for Dumbledore? The Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone is currently being protected by a bunch of different enchantments. We're going to go through all of them at the end of the book. Because they're the obstacles between the person trying to get to the stone and the stone. And these obstacles are contributions from several of the teachers at the school. Including Quirrell. And what's Quirrell's obstacle? A freaking troll. Apparently, he has some sort of a gift for controlling trolls or something, so he uses one as his big defense-against-the-dark-arts stone protection. And then he tries to use a troll as a diversion so he can go after the stone? This is an ignorant plan. There's a zero percent chance that Dumbledore didn't catch on to this and know exactly what's going on, right? If you're familiar with this show, you can guess that I rarely ask a question like that without a theory to dive into. And if you'd like to dig into this particular theory, where we try to dissect Dumbledore's awareness of this awful ruse and his motivation for letting it play out, support the show on Patreon. All patrons receive early access to ad-free versions of this podcast. And as an all-star level patron, for just $5 a month, you'll also receive exclusive bonus episodes like Theory Corner, where we'll dive into this particular theory. Your support is how we'll keep the show going, and hopefully keep it growing. By the way, we're calling that theory Trolling Dumbledore. If that's not a reason to want to listen to it, I got nothing for you. Back to the chapter, where for some reason, Dumbledore is letting this nonsense just go down in his school. And we follow Harry and Ron as they try to save Hermione from the bathroom before she's brutally murdered by a moundrel. They see it go in a room, they lock it in, thinking they trapped it in and saved the school. How special for them. Of course, they trapped it into the same bathroom where Hermione is, because... Of all the rooms in this castle, it is somehow this one. Because plot. They go in, Harry's leadership and his Gryffindor start showing immediately. He's taking charge, he tells Ron, confuse the troll. They start throwing stuff at it and Harry runs to Hermione trying to pull her up and she's, she's frozen, she's toast at this moment. Harry does the only logical thing in this scenario. He jumps on the troll's back, grabs it around the neck, and inadvertently shoves a wand up its nose. Okay, less logical, but brave and stupid. Thankfully, Ron remembers how to pronounce the levitation spell properly, and Wingardium Levioses the troll's club before it knocks Harry's skull into the upper deck. It drops on the troll's head, knocks it out, and in come Prof. McG, Quirrell, and Snape, who, by the way... How the hell are these two here with Prof. McG? Snape cuts Quirrell off trying to get past Fluffy. And what? Quirrell says, Aw, shucks. You got me. Let's go be teachers again? Whatever. Hermione lies without really needing to. Prof. McG gives them a measly five points for not dying and sends them on their way. We're gonna have plenty of opportunities to complain about house points in that situation, so for now, let's pretend that this makes sense in any given world at all. The important thing is that our little dumbass duo just became the Golden Trio. And this is officially the moment that decides the fate of the Wizarding World, because without Hermione, these two idiots would be dead before we finish this book, let alone the Six Coming and thankfully, because if it was one book, I would not be doing this podcast. That leads us into chapter 11, Quidditch. And this is going to be pretty short, because ironically enough, for a podcast with high-level sports themes and a segment literally called Play by Play that we are talking about right now, I don't really think you'd want a recap of the silly game on broomsticks. Don't get me wrong, if I'm a wizard, I'm playing Quidditch. But the game itself isn't super integral to the plot. However, there are definitely important moments. But before we get to those, we have one before the match starts where Snape is bullying Harry, taking his Quidditch book, making up a rule about taking a library book outside. Really? If you check out a library book, you can only read it under the castle roof. Get out of here you're basically just abusing your authority on a kid you hate because you never got over your childhood trauma, so you grew up and got his parents killed, and it fuels your self-loathing. I said it. But it gives us plot movement. Another clue. And when Harry goes back to get his book, he sees Snape and Filch talking about Fluffy and tending to the bad cuts on his leg. He sees Harry, screams at him, and all good educators and mentors would do the exact same thing. Right? Sure. Harry gets the hell out of there. But this is where the speculation of our little Sherlock gang really starts. Harry and Ron are convinced that Snape let the troll in and tried to get past the fluff pup. Hermione isn't convinced and next day, Quidditch. The match never matters. Here's what matters. Harry almost dies when his broom starts trying to buck him off. Hermione sets Snape on fire, apparently not defending him anymore. He still caught the snitch because Harry doesn't lose Quidditch unless he's unconscious. And he caught the snitch in his mouth and nearly swallowed it. After the match, they tell Haggard about Snape. They think he cursed Harry's broom. Of course, we know that he was using a counter curse, but shouldn't he have known that it was Quirrell that was jinxing the broom in the first place? Quirrell knew it was Snape trying to counter. Why didn't Snape know it was Quirrell doing the cursing? Of course, I'm sure there's no part of magic where you can sense who the caster is when you're in the middle of this type of magical uh, interaction of sorts. But they were standing pretty close to each other, at least close enough that with Snape having just caught Quirrell doing some really shady stuff, who else would he think it would be? And rather than muttering a counter jinx or whatever he was doing, why didn't he just turn around and curse Quirrell? Like, curse Quirrell. I can't say that very well. How many curse Quirrell, curse Curse Quirrell. Curse Curse! Quirrell. I didn't set this up. Curse Quirrell. There we go. Dumb bit. Maybe he should have just punched him. All it took was breaking his concentration. Thanks to Hermione and all, but how does this mystery actually make any sense? It makes sense to the trio. They're not privy to the information that we are as rereaders. But now that we know all the behind-the-scenes stuff that's going on, There are a few things that just don't really hold up to scrutiny. Disclaimer, I love these books, but how can we think about them critically without acknowledging when things just don't make any sense outside of we needed an excuse for Hermione to save the day and still think Snape is the bad guy, so Snape can't do the logical thing that a good guy actually would do, like turn around and hit the guy that's cursing the broom. Anyways, Hagrid tells them about Fluffy, he defends Snape, and he lets Nicholas Flamel's name drop, supposedly on accident. I'm not so sure that Dumbledore didn't actually intend for Hagrid to be a vessel to pass Harry information as part of his plan. He needs Harry to figure out the clues, so he needs to drop the clues. And he can't do it himself, so why not use the trusted protector and friend? That chess piece that he set up back in Chapter 1, couldn't that have been Hagrid's role all along? Intentional or not, that's how the chapter ends, bringing us to the Scouting Report segment. Scouting Report. So as a reminder, the Scouting Report on the Belated Binge podcast is where we hone in on one particular character. What did we learn about them in the chapters that we're covering, and how does that help to shape or maybe even predict, perhaps, some of the stuff that's to come for them in the series. In today's Scouting Report, we're doing our first one on Neville. Harry's relief that he wasn't paired with Neville in Flitwick's charms class is, I'm just going to say, it's rather disappointing. Where the book says that he was relieved to be partnered with Seamus because Neville had been trying to catch his eye. I don't like So far, Harry's been a pretty high character kid. He even sticks up for Neville multiple times leading up to this moment. He doesn't want to see Neville get bullied, but he also doesn't really want to be friends with him. You get the sense that Harry pities Neville at this point in the book, and if so, that sucks. Perhaps I'm overthinking the passage, and maybe Harry just doesn't want to be Neville's partner in class, not because he doesn't like Neville, but because Neville sucks at magic, and he doesn't want a bad grade. That is always a possibility in this situation, because that's how Neville has been laid out for us in these first few chapters of the first book. He's kind of bumbling. Either way, Neville's presumed disappointment in that moment just seems par for the course for him at this point, but it doesn't make it any less sad for his character. Neville hasn't done wrong by anybody since he got to Hogwarts. He's a nice kid, he's a loyal dude, and just seems to have a desire for friendship. And he's not really getting it he's clumsy forgetful kind of whiny and he describes himself in the next book as practically a squib this is a character whose family thought that he was a squib until he was like eight years old or something if i'm recalling that correctly and his crazy ass uncle dropped him out of a window i believe he says he bounced down the road to everyone's delight i don't know all this has led him to be incredibly insecure and who can blame him For what we know about his home life and what we learn over the course of the books is that his grandmother is super hard on him and constantly comparing him to his father trying to force him to live up to the legacy. And it's a hell of a legacy. His parents were orers who fought against Baltimore in the Order of the Phoenix. They were apparently formidable because it could have been them who were the subject of Trelawney's prophecy instead of the Potter's. He and Harry were born a day apart and both of their parents had apparently thrice defied Voldemort. I still don't know what that part of the prophecy means, but it seems important, and it honestly seems badass. We were a coin flip away from reading Neville Longbottom in the Sorcerer's Stone right now. or philosophers. But we're not. His parents are still alive. In St. Mungo's Hospital. With irreparable brain damage, from what I can only imagine was an incredibly long exposure, the Cruciatus Curse. They were quite literally tortured into insanity at the hand of Bellatrix Lestrange, Barty Crouch Jr., and a couple others that get basically no page time. So home life for Neville, not great. And then he comes to school. He's got a toad that he keeps losing, and apparently toads aren't the coolest pets to begin with. He's shown little to no magical prowess, he's always forgetting the password to the common room, He nearly gets caught by Filch in the trophy room for being so clumsy, and he falls off a broom and breaks his arm or wrist or whatever it was the first time that he tries to fly one. The kid is written as a complete loser and super sympathetic character. And at this point in the story, that just kind of hit me harder. I don't know, this time for some reason, that just, it sucks more. I'm imagining a kid who can't catch a break and who desperately just wants to be friends with the boys in his dorm, and the reaction that we get from Harry is, thank God I wasn't paired with that kid, and that sucks. It also makes me think the turning point in the arc for Neville is going to be particularly satisfying during this reread. I don't want to go through the entire thing about it right now, right here, because that's getting pretty far ahead of ourselves, but book Neville gets a growth arc to match the actor's glow-up, and if you watch the 20th anniversary, or followed Twitter ever in the past 20 years. It's been well documented. But I will say this. Part of the reason that Neville is kind of terrible at magic right now is the fact that he's using his dad's old wand. And we know that the wand chooses the wizard. This wand didn't choose Neville. And he's not that great at magic right now for it. And guess what? There's another character who's using a hand-me-down wand right now, and who's not that great at magic at this moment. It's Ron. We draw a lot of parallels between Harry and Neville, because honestly, according to the prophecy, either one could have been the chosen one, the boy who lived. Who knows if they'd have been the boy who lived. We don't know what Frank and Alice Longbottom would have done if it was them in the Potter shoes. We can assume, and we're gonna, that we would be reading the same book, just with maybe the Neville and the Harry characters flipped. Their fates are so intertwined with each other that the parallels that get drawn between them are inevitable. This one with Ron, and any with Ron, not so much. But both of them are gonna end up getting their own wands. And both of them are definitely gonna grow. Might take them a minute to grow up. Though. Let's do some foreshadowing. Wait. So you like concerts, podcasts, and music, and you don't listen to Concerts That Made Us Podcast? Oh man, you're missing out. You've got to head over there straight away. They have interviews with the best up-and-coming bands, as well as some famous ones thrown in the mix too. And don't even get me started on the concert stories. Oh man, are they wild. That's Concerts That Made Us Podcast. New episodes every Thursday on all podcast players. Explaniarmus. It's time to disarm your reluctancy and explain how you can support this podcast. Belated Binge is a fully independent production. I read the books, write the script, record the episode, edit the recording, pick and produce the sounds, manage the content schedule, manage social media, promote the podcast, and feed Producer Jack. Any costs from equipment, to software, to website development, marketing, any of that, comes out of my pocket. And despite how many times I've been told we look alike, I'm no Harry Potter. No half-giant has ever taken me to a bank full of cash and said, Hey, you're rich! Having a podcast takes a lot. And it's not easy. So, your support is literally the only thing that keeps the show going. And There are a few key ways you can support the podcast. First word of mouth is absolutely huge if you enjoy the show please tell every one of your potterhead friends to give it a shot also many of the pod players now support a rating and review function apple spotify good pods pod just to name a few and it takes about four seconds to leave a five star rating on the app this can be greatly impactful if you have more than four seconds and the app that you're using supports written reviews, that's even better. Think about how reliant we are on reviews. Whether you're buying something new or deciding what book to read next, we're always looking at ratings and reviews to weigh into our decision. Podcasts are no different, and your positive review could be the difference in someone discovering the show and deciding to give it a chance. Another great way to support the show is engaging in the conversation yourself, whether it be answering the specific questions I pose during the show or on social media. Maybe you just have a theory of your own or you want to leave some feedback. I'd love to hear from you and maybe even share it on the podcast. You can submit your thoughts by leaving a voicemail on the website, belatedbinge.com. Just click the little leave a voicemail icon on the page that you visit. If you don't like the sound of your own voice... You can also respond in written form by using the contact form on the website, leaving comments or DMs on social media. My handle is belated binge across Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And you can also email belated binge at gmail.com. The final and perhaps most impactful form of support is to become a patron on Patreon. I've made a ton of updates to Patreon membership benefits this season and some goals to shoot for as well there are currently six tiers available designed to fit any budget level ranging from one dollar to twenty dollars with all the bells and whistles so benefits range from early access to ad-free versions of the show recognition on the website bonus episodes patron shout outs show prep notes insider participation binge award participation input on show content and future benefits a drawing for a physical gift sent from me to you and others i've also set some growth goals that will unlock new benefits for existing tiers and maybe even adding some more stuff as we go the first goal is to get 10 total patrons, at which point I will start a Patrons Discord server. However you choose to support the show, thank you. I truly appreciate it. Now, let's get you back into the flow of the episode. shadow. If you're new to the show or you just forgot how we do things around here, the foreshadow segment is where we... Take four moments of the chapters that we're covering and we show how they foreshadow something later to come in the story. And so we're going to start today with kind of the obvious one, the troll that Quirrell lets in. I think the plot line is stupid enough that I don't even want to count it. So I'm actually giving this like a first half of one. It's an honorable mention at best. My first official one is Harry's leadership. Harry isn't the smartest character. He's not the best with a wand, pause for jokes. His spells aren't unusually powerful. All in all, he's a pretty average wizard in a lot of ways, pretty much the whole time. But what makes him the hero is his bravery and his leadership, both on full display in these chapters. With the troll, he has no idea what he's doing, but he takes charge. He tells Ron what to do, he runs to Hermione to try to get her out of there, physically attacks a mountain troll, and he's also very cool under pressure. Think about when his broom goes haywire. He keeps himself from plummeting to his death, sure, but he also keeps his wits and his nerve because as soon as it stops trying to kill him, he doesn't fly straight to the ground and never fly again like most 11-year-olds would. Rather, he immediately remounts and goes and catches the snitch. These traits are constant in the series, in a ton of key moments, and these are just some of the very, very early examples of what's to come. The second thing that we're going to foreshadow, officially, is Wingardium Leviosa. Hermione teaching Ron this spell was more than just a meme. It had a same chapter foreshadow, as that's the spell that he used to knock out Quirrell's Troll, It also comes in handy later in the series. One in particular that comes to mind is the seven potters flying through the air when Harry levitates the sidecar to stop himself from, again, plummeting to his death from however high in the air that he was after Hagrid severs the sidecar from the motorcycle. What is the deal with Harry constantly being in danger of just free-falling from the sky? And, I don't know. The third thing that we want to foreshadow in this episode is The snitch that Harry catches in his mouth. I'm not going anywhere near those particular jokes. See, there's time and place. But it becomes the same snitch that Dumbledore used to hide the resurrection stone, and he has to touch it with his mouth to see the inscription of how it opens at the close. That snitch lets him have the support of his dead family, blood and chosen, with him when he sacrifices himself to Voldemort in the forest. It's a good thing he's the master of death. Oh, and that gleam of triumph thing. Whichever thing allows him to come back. He has both going for him. Um, But otherwise, that's a real depressing end to these books. The fourth thing that we want to foreshadow this week is Hermione catching Snape on fire. This one's just kind of fun. And it also comes back around a few times uh, with Devil's Snare being the most notable in this book. But she just kind of has a knack for those little blue flames so they just keep popping up randomly throughout the series it seems and i like blue and i don't like snape so him being caught on fire just brings me joy so it got the number four spot with that let's head into our game of inches segment a game of inches the game of inches on the belated binge podcast is where we take one moment in the chapters that we're covering for the episode and we tweak them just a little bit one small change in what we read and we see what that ripple effect could have been like how does that snowball to impact the rest of the series and would we even get the same book would we get the same story if we change just one small event from these chapters and honestly this is one of my favorite parts of the show that we do so i hope you enjoy it too But today what we're going to dive into a little bit is what if Harry doesn't catch that snitch? We can assume they lose that Quidditch match, which, sure, does Harry become the star seeker? I'm pretty sure the only Quidditch match he doesn't catch the snitch in is the one in Prisoner when the Dementors show up and he passes out in his broom, nearly plummeting to his death from high feet again. Just this kid, somebody just put a pillow under him. A mattress, I don't know, one of those big trampoline things. Whatever it takes. He's always nearly or somehow surviving falling from however high. In this particular case that I'm referring to, it's a good thing Dumbledore was there because he did the whatever, that momentum thing to make him, you know, not die when he hit the ground. Beyond Quidditch, though, because who cares about Quidditch? How does Dumbledore get Harry the resurrection stone without? that snitch play? How does he become master of death? The obvious answer might be the next snitch that he would catch, okay? But he catches that with his hands. And it's the act of nearly swallowing this one that allows it to not open when the minister forcefully shoves it in Harry's hand to try to force it open. Of course, it doesn't. But would it even matter if it did? The snitch doesn't open when Harry puts it to his lips, either. Dumbledore put some sort of enchantment on it so that the only thing that happens when he puts it to his mouth is he sees the engraved message that Dumbledore left him, eye-open at the close. So would he use the next snitch and just use an even more cryptic message? Or would he know that any message or tip-off that he could possibly leave on the snitch, that would be enough for the ministry to see? I don't know, whatever it was that they were looking for, the excuse that they needed to keep it away from Harry because, you know, government and plot. He couldn't just use a piece of jewelry either, like a, the ring that it was in, because he wants it to be hidden, not just from the ministry, but from Harry too, until the final moment. Would it even be in his will? Would he have possibly tasked Snape With giving it to him disguised as something else. I doubt it, but maybe. Snape, as he put it, spends too much time dangling on the arm of Lord Voldemort, and Voldemort would definitely recognize the ring that he had used as a Horcrux and that it was broken, suggesting that his Horcrux is now gone. So this is way too sensitive, I think, of information for Dumbledore to have left to Snape, even under some kind of guy's a ruse. So maybe he would have left it, I don't know, left his form somewhere physically, Godric's Hollow maybe, knowing that they were going to go there. What if he magically put it into the hilt of the Sword of Gryffindor, disguised as one of the rubies? But then how would Harry have noticed it? Another thought I had that I really liked was what about Fox? Could he have used him as a messenger? Again, but disguised as what? Because while Harry immediately suspects that it was in there as soon as he learns about the Hallows, that wasn't exactly Dumbledore's intention, or was it? He wanted Harry to ask for it in the forest, so we wanted him to know it was in there, but not until the right moment. This is an incredibly complicated plot point for sure, but there was definitely intent behind it. In that final chapter, he says that he was counting on Hermione to slow Harry down from going just full bore after the Hallows, He didn't want him to possess them until he was ready for it. And so he had to make it hard to get to the stone, but he also needed to make it obvious enough, I guess, that Harry would know that he had the stone to get to. You know, We still don't know what it would be in. If he doesn't catch this snitch in his mouth, where does the stone get put? How does he get it to Harry? Hagrid, maybe? Hidden in an enchanted locket? Perhaps one of his parents had such an object. Maybe that would be a thing. What if he hid it in a gift for Molly to give to him on his 17th birthday? That would have been a tearjerker and poetic. But what would the gift be? For once on this podcast journey, I don't really have a theory here. But somehow, some way, Dumbledore needed Harry to get that stone. And without this weird... Bobbing for snitches moment here in chapter eleven of book one. I don't know how he does it. Let me know your thoughts. You can use Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, slide in the DMs. We're at belated binge across all of them. You can email belated binge at gmail. Become part of the discussion and let me know what you think on this especially on this one, because I'm I'm coming up goose eggs. I got nothing. What I do have though is a pile of meaningless awards. And we can give those away right now, starting with the Game Ball. The Game Ball. The Game Ball Award on the Bladed Binge podcast goes to the standout character in a positive way, our highlight, our MVP, our uh, winner of the episode. And for this one, I wanted to give it to Ron for coming through in the clutch with the troll, but he was honestly just too much of a little turd the whole rest of the time and really the reason that they had to go save her in the first place so I've got to go Harry here for being the one who realizes that Ron is being a douchebag to Hermione for putting the clues together and getting at least the gist of it right when it comes to the events of Halloween and for taking charge and saving Hermione's backside from the troll for not dying on his broom for catching the snitch and winning the dumb game for Gryffindor and while he isn't perfect he's just a better dude than his boy Ron in these particular chapters He steps up, and for that, he gets rewarded with the game ball. So now we'll give away the red card. Red card. So if the game ball is the award for the best character of the episode, the red card is the one that we wish we could just throw out of the books. And this one, this is Quirrell, right? He lets a troll into a school full of children. He tries to steal the main object, Philosopher's or Sorcerer's Stone, for Voldemort and he tries to kill Harry during a Quidditch match. So he also, he also loses extra points for having baby Voldy infestation on the back of his head. But either way, he sucks. He's the worst, and he gets the red card this week. Leading us into the Fumble. Fumble. So the Fumble Award doesn't go to a character, it goes to the text itself. Um, This is where we call out just a section of what we read that doesn't, it it drops the ball, for lack of a better way to put it, that's why we called it a fumble. And for this week, it's, it's everything between Snape and Quirrell. It just doesn't align for me. The theory about why Dumbledore let the nonsense slide is one thing. But how Snape catches him going after the stone and then just, you know, shows up in the bathroom with him as nothing happens? How were they close enough in the stands that Hermione knocks Quirrell over, breaking his eye contact as she's setting Snape on fire, yet Snape couldn't just turn around and punch the dude in the throat or something? It would do the same thing, but no, that doesn't happen. If you want to tell me that Snape didn't know it was Quirrell, I call BS because we know Dumbledore tasks Snape to keep an eye on Quirrell already. He's already caught him going after the stone, and now, coincidentally, Harry's broom's just trying to kill him, and we're just assuming it's something else? We're okay with him just being another teacher still, after all of this stuff that's happened to It's not all Snape. Dumbledore takes blame here as his master plan being, you know, behind these things being let to happen. I'm just saying that they are Snape and Coral scenes, and they don't make sense, but plot. I guess. And cool. Hermione makes fire. I don't know. That's the fumble for me this week. With that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Belated Binge podcast. A reminder to tune in to next week's first year's podcast, uh, where I get to go on with Sarah and we get to talk about Order of the Phoenix. I'm excited about it. You should be too. And I hope that you come over and check it out. As always, shout out to producer Jack, who we work like a dog. Remember to follow and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, please, if you enjoyed the show, five stars. Become a patron over on Patreon for early access to ad-free episodes at both tiers that we have available and exclusive content as an all-star level patron there's a link in the show notes as well to make it really easy. Uh, We also have links in there for social media, which is belated binge on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The show segments are also available on YouTube. And if you're reading along next week, we're going to be doing chapters 12 and 13 of Sorcerers slash Philosopher's Stone. Otherwise, we'll see you next time on the belated binge podcast.